All right, guys, look, we know what this is. It's my pre-show pitch to try to convert more free first-hour listeners to full two-hour-plus-show subscribers. And this is a format I've been using for 10 years now, so I realize that most people who see the value have already pulled the trigger on it, but now I'm trying to get deep down into those hard-to-reach places, and I guess that's you. Now, what can I say that hasn't been said? There's only a few ways a podcast works. The big one is ads. They suck. They ruin the flow of the show. And in a lot of cases, they erode the trust and respect I have for hosts that go this route. They shouldn't be promoting boner pills and hair pills or encouraging a fast track through the therapy pipeline just because they're getting paid. I've seen nutritionalists break down some of these ingredients in the athletic health powders and drinks and surprise, they're not as good as they claim to be. I bought a razor my favorite podcaster said would be nick-proof, nicked myself the first day. I got sucked into a foam mattress from a guy who said he's never slept better and I haven't slept good since. And that Irish titles thing everyone was selling turned out to be a complete scam too. But enough about how my colleagues' mouths are for sale to whoever asks, I'm here to put you in this Plus membership today. Five shows a month for eight bucks with a decade-long archive. And yes, the first hour is important. It's there to present our guests to the wide, counterculture, open-minded audience we've cultivated, and it gives people a feel for if they like what THC is, as well as being the proof of concept that I can do a lot more with the added time. The second hour is so I can make a living, and it's also an opportunity to get into the stuff your standard one-hour shows can't, asking guests about that obscure, provocative quote from their book that I actually read, talking about previous work they might have done, getting their thoughts on some odd subject outside of their latest material, or maybe even talking about something too spicy to be out there in the open. And that should appeal to anyone who enjoys the first hour. And when you become a Plus member, these full episodes are all there in a single two-hour file, no switching back and forth or downloading two separate halves of the same interview. It's very nice to have it that way going forward, and if you want to go back, unlike most podcast archives that are just a big chronological list, the HiresideChats.com has categories and scrolling displays much like the big streaming services, and it's all optimized for mobile, and you can even download the files for offline listening. Find some old ones you liked and refresh your memory by starting at the beginning or jump in about 50 minutes to hear everything that would be new to you. I'm even going to be pulling one free plus show a month out of the archive and into the free feed to give you an even better sense of what you miss. The on-site comment section is pretty lively and the rating system is there to let me know the shows plus people like best. You also get lifetime access to the forum and access to a bonus page of exclusive interviews I've done here and there, bonus content from other shows that I was on, videos from the few live podcasts I've done, and the mp3s of all the THC closing cover songs I've had made. But that's not all, folks. Plus members also get a discount code for THC merch. A lot of great artwork of aliens, summoning rituals, hollow earth maps, and a wide range of wild stuff put on shirts, coffee mugs, pillows, yada, yada, yada. But it's the ongoing full interviews people want and it's convenience that they need. Well, I know 90% of listeners are in a podcasting app right now. So at the top of the show notes, there are the signup links. The form is quick and easy, and THC Plus has an RSS feed like any other show, and it can be used with all the big podcasting apps, too. I've got support documents and real, non-bot people to help you if you need it. But it's been made as easy as it can be, and you get a seven-day free trial to make sure I'm right. At least meet me there. I also have a Patreon link at the top of the show notes, which I don't love. I'd rather not have a middleman between us when we could be dancing cheek to cheek, but they are a Spotify partner, and a lot of people choose Spotify to listen to THC. So I wanted to make sure they could use it for Plus also, while they let us. 
The show notes also give you my P.O. box for cash, checks, or business-to-business bartering, as well as all the crypto addresses, because anything is better than nothing. And I want the Plus shows to be heard any way they can be. Just offer me some kind of exchange, you know? This is the job I work at. And I use this example a lot, but a waiter gets an $8 tip for walking the most forgettable meal of your life from the kitchen to the table, and you don't get anything extra for your $8 either. If what I do here isn't at least worth that, is it even worth your time? Hey, I don't like doing this part of the job, but I owe it to my family now to suck it up and make my case while I can, because who knows how long this can last. I'm not some Hollywood millionaire trying to appear genuine through a focus-grouped podcasting venture cycling through all the other celebrities in the agency. I'm just a regular guy who had to make myself valuable when the working world didn't think I had anything to offer. And I hope the first free hour proves that the full experience is worth the price. If we don't like the ad revenue-based world we're living in, then we have to support people who dare to do it a different way, who provide us something interesting, entertaining, and hopefully useful. Outside of that, I just ask that you support the guests who resonate with you, or at least let them know you appreciated what you heard. And that's it. We can get on with the show. And we'll let the rest of the podcasting world pretend there's no better way to do it than disingenuously hyping up any product that cuts them a check while we do our own thing. Meet me on the plus side. The water's fine. And enjoy. No need for arduous seeking. All you have to do is follow the clues. You start to see this as a simulation, as a type of computerized AI manufactured reality. We are playing like putty into the hands of the manipulators who are just setting us at war with each other. Buckle up, kids. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And even though events in the world are presented to us as random occurrences in a chaotic cosmos, the closer you pay attention to highly charged incidents, numbers, dates, symbols, and the odd performances at major gatherings, the more reality starts to seem like one big ritual carried out by dark occultists and some secret network of satanic string pullers. Maybe they bend reality to their will through these acts. Or maybe the dark entities they engage with arrange the pieces for them from the other side, but there is certainly intention infused into however they make it work. And as the already malleable matrix makes its way through the era of its digital upgrade of dedicated devices, social media manipulation, bot farm brigades, QR codes, smart cities, deep fakes, and AI everything, reality has only gotten more confusing and the distinction between real and illusionary has never been harder to discern. But lucky for us here at the Higher Side Chats, we have ritual watchers like the great Michael Wan to help us make sense of such things. He blew minds with his original work deconstructing river goddess worship and Susquehanna sorcery, harnessing the power of druidic magic to usher in the age of the Aquarian archetype. And he's been on a ritual revealing role ever since. 
Today, we're doing the dance for a seventh time, and he's told me he has a new string of synchromistic storytelling to reveal, and even THC gets looped into this one. I don't know if that's good or bad, but let's get into it. The unplugged and ever-illuminated Susquehanna Sage, Michael Wan. Welcome back, my man. Greg, it is good to be here. I have envisioned this conversation that we are having right now really for probably the last four or five months. So there's a lot of anticipation within me and we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. Like the arc of our relationship, when I say our relationship, that's me and you having these conversations, but then also the audience, because without the witness, without the people observing this, like it doesn't have the sort of energy and the impact and effect, which occurs when just like two guys are just chatting on the side of the road. So what we're doing here is, at least from my perspective, like it's significant. There are ripple effects. And the arc of our relationship has been around ritual and esoteric ritual and bringing things that exist in the collective and the individual subconscious and bringing it forward, collapsing it, if you will. This happens with all subliminals. Once the subliminal is identified, it no longer has its charge. And so we've been doing that and we've established that sort of dynamic here, all three of us, the third being the audience, obviously. And today it feels like, and I guess maybe this is always true in our conversations, but right now it feels like we're at a new space. Like we've been developing an understanding or a similar language in which to talk about these rituals. And now we're going to really look at the big one, the really big one, which is ironic because our first episode was titled The Big Ritual. But it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Yes, that's my response. Well, we're definitely in a new space physically. I haven't done an episode with you from Florida. You are in a new physical space. And I hope this goes as well as it seems like it will and might have in your mind's eye. It was great to see you in meet space at Jim Gale's Galt's Landing event. That puts you on a short list of very few guests I've met in real life. So that was fun. And to get into this, you sent me a series of 14 slides that make a lot of connections between some high profile events over the last couple of years that weave through major athletes, cultural drama, key places, major motion pictures. And even the THC episode release schedule, which I know is pretty sporadic and unconscious. So, you know, people don't burn me at the stake like I'm part of the club or something. But how do we start this thing? Well, okay. So, in two ways, we are part of it. Like, that's part of the mystery and part of what is overlooked. The practice of sitting on the sideline of just being witness. Like, I mentioned, like, the audience is a witness. Like, there's a power in witness. That's, one of the reasons why these rituals are done in the way which they are is because they need to have participation and witness because the nature of our reality, and the reality is a mystery. Like I'm not claiming to know what any of this is, but what we can do is get a little bit more clear on at least how it works. And so witness is important, but we have to realize that there's no separateness in it. We are co-creating. We're part of it. So that's one of the reasons why I say 
that this audience, particularly the higher side chats audience, both in its size and then also in the caliber of consciousness, which people bring to it, like being open-minded and being willing to look at other ideas and weigh them and not just trust an expert, but gather information. Like this is a special group. And so we're doing something. So this is the other thing which I want to say is you said that your planning of the release dates, it just kind of happens. Well, that's pretty much how life does work. Like it just happens and we're all part of it. And we're all like, you can't watch it and not be part of it. So that's why it's so important in my opinion that we discuss these things because we see how we're a part of it. And as we become more and more aware of this collective dance that we're doing with whomever is on the other side, you know, assuming it's not us on the other side, like we then become, and this is going to be a theme hopefully in this conversation, is we become more sovereign. We're not just witnesses of watching this nightmare alley unfold, but we're realizing that we're participating. And then as we are more aware of our participation and how we're participating unconsciously, we then can become more conscious and then even more playful. So I want to go back, though, before we really dive into this, because you brought up like our meeting face to face. We met at Jim's event in 1111, almost a month ago, if you will. And that was great fun. And I wasn't planning on attending. I had been in St. Petersburg, Florida for a six week house sitting gig. And that was my very last day. So it lined up perfectly like ritual. I look at all of life kind of from this ritual lens. And I'm like, this is the closing event for me for that one portion in St. Petersburg. And the only reason I knew about that event is I saw that you mentioned it on Instagram and I was like, okay, everything's kind of lining up and I'm going to go there. And I don't even know if I told you that I was going to come. I think that I assumed you were going to be there, but we met and we met face to face. And that was exciting for me too, because you know it's nice to be able to transfer a relationship from just over digital to like in person. So that's a big deal. But you and I were almost going to meet in 2022. And you were going to an event in, you're involved with a meetup event in Austin, Texas. And I do another show with Emily Moyer, who lives in Austin, Texas, and happened to be your birthday the same weekend that you were doing your show. And I was like, all right, well, let me go down and I'm going to make a thing out of it. I booked the tickets and I'm going to fly out of Baltimore at the time. And I'm driving down, it's like four in the morning and I get an alert. And this time of year, this was, I think it was July of 2022, as I said, and that was when the thing in the news, which they were manipulating everyone with was like cancellations of air flights. Like, you know, make certain you go and you check your air flight. I've never had a canceled flight before and that flight was canceled. So I was unable to go to Austin. And I was a little bit disappointed, but I also roll with life very easily. So I turn around and I go back. And as soon as I go back, I receive a text. I was staying at a place called No Countryside, which also is an Airbnb. And someone who is familiar with the Susquehanna Alchemy work and definitely familiar with Higher Side Chats randomly sends me a message which says, hey, me and my fiance are coming up to Lancaster for a family reunion, and we just booked to stay at the Airbnb at Known Countryside. Is there any chance like we can meet up? Something like that. And I was like, sure. You know, like one door shuts, the window opens. So as it turns out, this guy, his name is Austin. 
So I don't go to Austin, but Austin comes to me. And he's there with his wife's birthday. And I was going there for Emily's birthday. And so like all of this stuff is coming back. And we just had the most amazing time. And there's always like an interesting element of culture and cultural nostalgia, I guess, if you will, in a lot of my interactions, or at least within the lens which I view reality. And so both Austin and his wife are former Olympiads. So like literally Olympiads. And the Olympic event they both participated in was bobsled. Like who knows Olympic bobsledders, but we all know that from like the cool running sort of video or movie, excuse me. And so like to have like Austin and his wife on her birthday come to me when I'm disappointed to not go to see my other friends on their birthday in Austin. Like it's that level of interconnectedness, which is really the foundation of our life here. Like when you begin to see that more and more, you can trust it more and more. And I bring this into our conversation because this is part of the purpose for ritual. The reason why these rituals are done is because it is known that this is how reality is created, that there is this relationship between the outer world and the inner world and the witness and the people who are doing it. And that as that becomes part of one's consciousness, then life unfolds in a way that matches it. Like it may not go exactly how you think it's going to go, but it's going to go. And so that's kind of where I would like to delve into this conversation about the latest ritual. What I would say is probably, you know, arguably the biggest ritual in our lifetimes, maybe, you know, for as long as the history, which they tell us, you know, whatever the hell history is. And it is the fact that all of this stuff is happening and we're participants in it. And it is unfolding within our lives in this like unconscious way. But if you allow it and if you can relax into it and you can begin to become a more integrated partner with it, this is where this idea of sovereignty or to go with the title of Jim's event, the path to freedom, you know, not in the trademark sense, but like in a more fundamental sense. So that's my introduction. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great setup. Your own personal story is a good example of how things flow if you're paying attention to the details. And it seems like the cabal really likes to just fill our own heads with all their stories, which are maybe pegged to certain dates and certain numbers to make them more potent. But if we're paying attention to their story, we miss our own story. And I even saw a weird example with that woman who went viral on the plane saying that motherfucker back there is not real. You probably saw this. She went viral and people were like, what the hell is she talking about? Well, in her interview, they show her in the airport and on the pillars, it has the gates and you can see that it's gate 23 and then behind that 22 and the first two is cut off. So it says three, two, two. And it's like the skull and bones number. It's like, Jesus, it is everywhere. And I don't know if that's calculated or if that's just some kind of synchromistic potency that just bubbles up from the other side, or if it's something I notice because of the way I live my life, it's tough. But that's a really good foundation to get this thing going. And the linchpin that kicks it off is the release of that episode we did about Kobe Bryant, the esoteric Kobe Bryant skull and bones. There it is again. And ritual cycles. And that came out on February 28th, 2020. It was recorded a little bit before 
but I'm notorious for just putting out shows whenever they're done. And the rule of like podcasting 101 to be successful, they say have a release schedule every Friday, every whatever. And I never have. It's just five shows a month. And that gives me a pretty wide flexibility to go out of town for a week here or do something there. And that's just the way it is. But given that the show came out February 28th, 222. Why is that date important? How does that connect to a larger story? All right. So this is great. Let's go back in time to January 26, 2020. And so January 26, 2020, Kobe Bryant, the basketball phenom, dies in this dramatic, fiery crash. And he was a cultural icon, so most people kind of knew who he was through commercials and stuff. Most people who have like a mainstream perspective. And then let's say people who are basketball fans have a particular interest in Kobe Bryant because of just his legacy. Now, I was intrigued because of the nature of his crash. Whenever you see something celebrity happening in a very grand way, and particularly an unusual way, which is easy to imagine, a helicopter crash immediately, these are big pictures of the imagination, like that's a thing. And it also kind of coincided with another, what I would always has been a touch point in my mind, another big ritual, which was the death of Whitney Houston. She died very close to where Kobe's crash was, which was in Southern California. She died in a hotel in Beverly Hills, but she drowned in a bathtub. So like this idea of drowning in a bathtub, like that's a big deal. These are all like powerful ways of manipulating imagination consciousness. So that immediately got, it clicked my awareness and there was another event which was very similar in the past with another famous helicopter crash, the only one that I knew of, and that also had to do with a celebrity, kind of a celebrity. He was a politician, John Hines of the Hines family fortune, and he died in a helicopter crash, and his helicopter exploded midair and rained down pieces of helicopter onto an elementary school playground as children were outside playing. Talk about images which they're putting into the collective consciousness. Like that happened. And where did that happen? That happened at Lower Marion Elementary School. That is in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And the reason why I made this connection was two reasons. One was like helicopter crash, helicopter crash. It's not a common thing. And John Hines is from a skull and bones family. But more interestingly, Kobe Bryant, who is arguably, and I say arguably, like people argue about this. Was he the greatest basketball player of all times? Like people go back and forth. They argue about that shit in like, you know, barbershops and street corners and like in bars, like, you know, but what they don't argue about where everyone's in agreement is that Kobe Bryant was the greatest high school basketball player to ever live. When he was in high school, he was the most dominant high school basketball player. And where did he play high school basketball? But at Lower Marion Township. Lower Marion High School was right next door to Lower Marion Elementary School. So we had this link. Like I saw this link and I quickly did all of this like research. Like it just unfolds effortless in front of me where I can see all of the markings of a Kabbalistic sacrifice. Like there are Kabbalistic ties like very, very deep into 
Kobe Bryant and why he was there and Skull and Bones. And it was pointing to a ritual, particularly like a sacrifice for a big ritual. And we had this conversation and I recommend for a listener, you know, you're going to hear what we're talking about now. Go back and re-listen to that conversation and listen to it with the knowing of what's going to be exposed as you and I continue right now. So we recorded in like early February. So the thing happened in late January. We go and we record and we're talking about like, this is a thing with all of these markings of a ritual. But we're like, I don't know what the ritual is. Like, we never <laughs> describe why. We could just describe what was happening. But I don't know if it was in the recording, but I remember this very, very clearly was maybe we were talking about it like in the pre-recording or the, the wrap up. We're like, hey, what about this COVID thing? You know, would you think it's a thing? You know, they're talking about the news. Like it was just starting to get steam. Right. And I remember this just because my birthday is March 25th. And with my friend group in San Diego, my birthday was the first event to get canceled. There's another girl in our group whose birthday is like, March 15th, we all went out for that birthday. So in my head, it's very easy to remember, like, when did COVID get serious? When did it become something different from the swine flu or the bird flu? And there were actual people afraid to get together right around March 20th. So yeah, this is basically 30 days before we could say, this isn't just another random news story. This is actually a real world thing that's going to affect our lives. Right. And when we did the recording, we were naive. Like, it's funny. Like, it was before the world changed through COVID. And we're kind of talking about it. And the nature of this program is topical conspiracy. And to talk about that before it became anything, and then to talk about it in the context of like, hey, this big ritual, this big Kabbalistic sacrifice just took place, like skull and bones, all these sort of things. So, as you said, which is such a great setup, because you and I, like, I sent you like an outline of what I want to talk about, but we didn't really talk about this. And you said, you just randomly picked, like, you know, the 28th came out probably because you need to get your fifth one out at the end <laughs> of your promised time, which indicates to everyone, like, you can throw the rules away. You don't necessarily have to go by the rules for things to still be successful. But so that happened. And was that date like the 22282L? Like, I don't know about that. But what I do know is this. About two weeks later, on March 13th, there was a state of emergency, like an official presidential decree that now everything shuts down. And the United States sets the theme. When the United States shut everything down, now it was real. And everything shut down. And that was on Friday the 13th. And then on Sunday was the 15th. 15th was the Sunday. And that is the Ides of March. You know, Francis Bacon, the author of Shakespeare, wrote Julius Caesar. And that's where that famous line of like, beware of the Ides of March. To me, like Friday the 13th, the Ides of March, that's when it became real. But I'm going to suggest, and you're going to understand why once we get to it, that the corona ritual began in earnest. The esoteric ritual began in earnest on the release date of 1228, which was fueled by like whatever like was the happenstance of what was going on in Greg's head. There was no plan on it. And that goes back to that example of one Austin collapsed and then another Austin came through. This is just how it is. We are all part of this dance. 
So Corona happens. You're like, why are you talking about Corona? That was like two years ago. We got World War III to worry about right now. Just everyone like, let's just calm down. This is one of the most important things which they don't want us to do. Just relax. They do everything to get us not to be still. So we're going to get to it. The Corona came and it went. And maybe we'll discuss about like what actually happened in terms of culture, what did change, what didn't change, all these sort of things. But this is where we want to go to. We want to go to the date of September 10th, 2023. So just 90 days ago, this is December 8th, as we're recording this right now. And so first off, like I just say September 10th, like September 10th is a trigger date in all of our minds. September 12th doesn't quite have the same effect. September 11th obviously does, but September 10th in the same way that December 24th implies Christmas in a way that December 26th does not, September 10th has a charge to it. But I mean, that's just like kind of in the background. This is like part of the setting of the table. So what happened on September 10th was tennis great Novak Djokovic wins the Men's United States Open Tennis Championship. And what? Like, you know, what's the big deal? You know, World War Three. we got all this sort of stuff. You talk about tennis. I'm like, okay, let's really like unpack here. Really, because this is, it's in the details. Like part of the joy of being able to unpack and to see what's happening all around us is to see this grand spectacle, which we're all part of. So we're looking at this symbolically. So maybe some of the listeners are tennis fans, but I'm going to talk to the people who aren't necessarily tennis fans, just to bring them into context of what the United States Open is. So in the tennis world, there are four big tournaments and they're like known as Grand Slam tournaments and the US Open is one of them. So it's a big deal. And this guy... Novak Djokovic, he won his 24th Grand Slam event, and that made him the all-time winningest Grand Slam tennis player. And in the tennis world, that's kind of how they categorize, like, you know, who's the best of the best? Remember we talked about, like, people argue, like, is Kobe the GOAT? Is, like, Michael Jordan the GOAT? Is Will Chamberlain the GOAT? Like, you know, people argue about it, and they look for things for, like, well, this is what defines what the greatest is. So in the tennis world, winning Grand Slams, the most amount of Grand Slams, that's one of the indicators. They're like, without a doubt, Djokovic is the greatest tennis player, the king of all tennis players, and this happens. So he goes and he wins this event. And afterwards, this is, you know, tennis world's very like kind of upper crust, or at least its history is upper crust. And there's a big ritual afterwards, and they give the trophy and all sorts of stuff happens. And he comes and he receives his trophy. And he's wearing this warm-up jacket and he goes on to receive his trophy and he takes off his warm-up jacket and he's wearing a Kobe Bryant t-shirt. There's a whole bunch of reasons why he's wearing a Kobe Bryant t-shirt. But for the point of where we're coming from, like he's wearing a friggin' Kobe Bryant t-shirt. So like right there for me, because I'm going to look at it from my point of reference, which is really how we all have to see life from our own points of reference. Tennis is even more interesting because I'd made reference to Emily Moyer earlier. I do a regular show with Emily called Playing the Glass Bead Game. And we basically synchromistically like are always describing life, just like talking heads and people like it's fun. And for her, one of the key touch points, which she sees reality or 
interprets reality is through professional tennis. So I'm not particularly a tennis fan, but I'm aware of tennis because of Emily. And she talks about Djokovic all the time. So now these two characters who are in my realm, touch points of meaning, like they've just connected and they've connected on September 10th, you know, like the key event. You got Djokovic and you've got Kobe Bryant and like Kobe Bryant was the greatest of all time in basketball. And now we got new greatest of all time. And I'm like, okay, there's something going on here. And I look a little bit deeper. And so within Grand Slam tennis, the location of where the tennis tournament takes place is part and parcel with the event. It's part of the whole sort of pageantry of those tennis rituals, like the most obvious being Wimbledon. Most people have heard of Wimbledon, and Wimbledon is an actual place outside of London. And so the U.S. Open is also tied in. It's known for a place for where it's held. And where the U.S. Open is held is called Flushing Meadows. It's in the borough of Queens in the city of Manhattan. And so Flushing Meadows, the word Flushing Meadows, particularly in tennis, is synonymous with the U.S. Open. So I'm going and I'm looking at all this and I go and see Flushing Meadows is just like the abbreviated name. The full name of this location of the park where the United States Tennis Association Stadium Complex is located is called Flushing Meadows hyphen Corona Park. And so I'm like, okay, ding, 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 ding. We got ourselves a winner. We got Kobe Bryant. We got September 10th. We got Djokovic. And we got now Corona. And so the same sort of thing that happened when I saw the helicopter crash and the Marion Township and the helicopter crash and Kobe Bryant, I'm like, okay, I'm seeing a continuity. So the first thing I go and do, I'm like, oh, all right, well, what's the time difference? Because Corona is not really a thing anymore. You know, I mean, it kind of is, but it's page 10. Maybe it might come to page one when there has to be filler. But for the most part, like, you know, whatever that was done for, for the purpose of the public, that's gone. But Corona just showed up really, really boldly. And I went into the date counter, put in the two dates, and it comes out exactly 1,290 days. And so this is why that February 28th supposedly random release date, you know, the dates which I'm doing, like I'm kind of playing around. I'm asking myself, well, when did coronavirus begin? Did it begin when they said it was the first case? And it's real nebulous. And I'm like, is it when they made the national decree? Was when the first person in America got it? Like there's all these different things. And I'm like, well, what the hell? Like this analysis is being birthed. This is why I said it's so important. Mine and your conversation and the witness of the audience this is where it became a thing. This is where the esoteric nature, it grew. So the 28th became the obvious starting point. And it's from the 28th through the September 10th that we got this 1,290 days. So what's the big deal about 1,290 days? So now we're going to go into the Bible. And, you know, each person can decide however it is they want to describe the Bible. You know, whether you believe it's like, manufactured council of Nicaea, whether it's handwritten from God, whether it's something in between, I don't know. But what I can say with 100% certainty is that the Bible, it holds an immense, an immense amount of influence on our collective consciousness. No matter how you go around it, the Bible is significant. 
And Bible code stuff like that always intrigues me. And I'll even go one step further for all of us who have a conspiratorial perspective. And when I say conspiratorial, that just means I just know that the narrative that's being told to me by the powers that be is probably full of shit. And I question everything. There was once upon a time that conspiratorial consciousness or perspective was really, really not part of the mainstream. It is mainstream right now. There's ranges of how mainstream conspiracy is, but we all know this. Like, you know, the stuff you thought I was crazy about 10 years ago is common knowledge nowadays. The birthplace of modern conspiracy thought has come from the Christian subculture. Like, you go back to the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, literal Christianists, like literal Bible believers, these are the ones who like everything that we've learned going from a mainstream mindset to a conspiracy perspective, the best research all came from that world. So that world has always been a couple steps ahead of mainstream conspiracy. I want to throw that out there. So we're back to the Bible. In the Bible, there are really two books which deal with apocalypse. So we've got the book of Revelations, and we've got the book of Daniel. The book of Revelations is a little bit more known, but the book of Daniel also deals with the end of times, the end of times, the apocalypse, and then from a Christian perspective, which is coined as the second coming of Jesus Christ, of the King of Kings. You know, For full transparency, I was raised in an agnostic Jewish household. So I talk about Christianity. My father was a Christian came from a Christian background. My mother came from a Jewish background and I wasn't, there wasn't a religious upbringing in the forming of my consciousness, which allows me to be able to go in and out of religions without really any sort of emotional static. But anyway, so the book of Daniel, it talks about the tribulation, the period of time when everything gets really, really shitty. And then there's the second coming. And it is defined in the book of Daniel that that period of time is 1,290 days. And ironically, and I'm not saying anything other than the irony, is the main player in that time is a guy by the name of Michael. So I'm not saying anything more than that, but I'm saying like that's definitely in the play. So I'm going to pause for a moment here to allow you to like comment, ask questions, so forth, but we're laying a stage before we go deeper. So the key things which we have, we've got these markers of the release date of the esoteric Kobe Bryant or the esoteric, I like how you pronounce it, the esoteric Kobe Bryant episode. And then 1,290 days later, the period of tribulation, we then have Kobe Bryant showing up center stage at Corona Park on Djokovic's chest. And it is what I'm going to call the bookends, the beginning point and the end point of what I'm calling the corona ritual or the coronation ritual. So I'm going to pause now and give you an opportunity to speak. Sure. I mean, yeah, we are really getting into it now. And we're really only on the first of these 14 slides and we're 35 minutes in. So we'll see how this goes. But in this slide, you say the quote from the book of Daniel on this is there will be 1,290 days from the time of the regular burnt offering I mean, a person dying in a fiery helicopter crash. I even used basically a basketball on fire as the image for that episode. And yes, the one king of basketball, King Mamba, dies. And then the king 
of tennis wears his shirt when he wins the U.S. Open a year after being banned because he wouldn't take the jab, is my understanding. And this is happening at Flushing Meadows Corona Park. So Corona's definitely there to win after being banned because of this thing. And yes, as you mentioned, the bookends of the sacrifice. And then as you put in the notes, the old king and the new king, there seems to be definitely something there. And the Kobe episode, I just wanted to say some other things about it. Obviously, people can go listen to it, but Kobe is such a strange name. It's a term for beef, like a sacrificial cow. And that other crash happening above Lower Marion High School. John Hines' daughter is named Marion. She was on that helicopter. So what a weird name. You know, she dies as well. And his basketball jersey in high school just said Lower and is number 33. So Lower 33. I mean, this is about as esoterically potent a jersey as a person can have. And then they have all this success in this sport. There's definitely a lot of energy around this sort of stuff. I mentioned there are these Kabbalistic touch points with Kobe Bryant. So you definitely, listeners, you got to go back and listen to that show. But the real quick Cliff Notes version of it is the reason why Kobe Bryant played basketball at Lower Marion is he was raised in Italy. His father was a basketball player in Italy. And then he took on a high school basketball coaching job in order to bring his family back to the United States because he wanted his son to play American high school basketball. And where the father went and accepted this position, it was called Akiba Hebrew School. It's got a different name now. And it was a Jewish high school, a religious Jewish high school in Lower Marion Township in Philadelphia. The name of the high school is named after a famous Talmudic rabbi from the Middle Ages And he was known as being this phenomenal Kabbalistic magician. And he invented this ritual where he and these other like rabbis would meet every Sabbath and they would create out of nothing a calf. It was known as a calf ritual. And then they would sacrifice it and eat it as they would like talk about the world. Well, Kobe was literally named K-O-B-E, like this is part of his history. His parents were in Japan and they loved Kobe beef. And so he's literally named after the most succulent beef. And you can't make this stuff up. And you go and you see that, and you're like, okay, this is happening. And corona means crown, right? It's a crowning. This whole thing is a crowning, a king, a crowning ritual. That's what this is about. This is what is being said to us in very, very clearly into the subconscious. Right. And in Queens, New York. So- Where this thing really spirals out is when you do a deep dive on this Flushing Meadows Corona Park location because it is seeped in so much interesting stuff. So take us there. Let's get into that location. This is where the split happens. So the Corona ritual happens in the subconscious of the collective conscious in each individual. We all witness it. And what's being said is, Guess what? There's new age. Like, I don't even know if we'll get time to defining like, well, what's being crowned? Like, is it a new age? Jesus coming? Like, maybe it's just like they're saying it's happening. Whatever that is, what is being very, very clearly stated is a new king is being crowned, a new sovereign, a new age, a new era. 
And because we're witnesses, like this is where the exposure, if you want to, occurs, is we're all participating in it and we've all been crowned. We've all been crowned too. We're participants. Now, where it gets tricky and how the occultic ritual works is you take this energy, which people don't realize they're in, and then they anchor it or they lock it into a particular place. That's how you manipulate the energy and you control how reality unfolds and you get everyone on the same page. The revelation of the method is another way this has been described. So, okay, a big part of managing culture, of managing life on earth, whatever that may be, through ritual, which has been done for as long as they've been telling us they've been doing it, it's been done by doing these rituals and then linking it into the ground. There is something very, very significant into the ground. And, you know, just asterisks for you, like Florida with all of its mounds and particularly the West Coast of Florida and Tampa, like mound sites are like one of the ways that ancients would participate in this relationship between human life and the land which life is lived upon. But that same sort of logic is done in ritual. It's done in city planning. Like Ras Ben is a genius in terms of all of this sort of geomancy. So this kind of fits in with it. So this is why Flushing Meadows gets so interesting. So whatever this land of where we find Flushing Meadows on the island of Manhattan, we can begin by looking historically of what else has been linked into this land. Because what's happening is this Kobe Bryant Corona ritual is being linked into this land, linked in with all of this other stuff. So if you're not paying attention, if you don't realize what's happening, you're just like unconscious. You're just like going along with it. You're like, okay, whatever. Djokovic is the tennis king and you're just agreeing with it. You're going along with it. So this is where the split happens. So two things occur. One is we're going to look at what else has happened in this land. So we have an idea of who are the people and what are the outer motives or agenda. And then secondly, we're going to see what's known as the trickster or the mocking element, which is part of it because that's part and parcel with this as well. So let's go first look at what's happened in Flushing Meadows. There are a couple different themes. The first theme is it is immensely, it is immensely tied to Britain and the British Empire. So what we know is, so a couple ways, like Manhattan used to be known as New Amsterdam. That was before the English came over and then it became New York, York being like old York over in England. And this borough is called Queens. Like, so it became, it had as an English naming right for a while. And during the Revolutionary War, the British forces, their headquarters, their headquarters in what we think of as the United States, that was in Flushing Meadows. So we've got that's going on. You've got the Queens going on. There's a whole bunch of stuff with that. What I think is very interesting as well, there was a very significant World's Fair that took place here as well. And this World's Fair happened in 1939. And this was the precursor to World War II, another major ritual. And what happened at the World's Fair in 1939 in Flushing Meadows was there was arguably the first modern false flag explosion done by state-sponsored terrorism. And you can go and read about it. And the case has never been solved. At the World's Fair, there was an explosion done. And most people, it's assumed that the person behind it was William Stevenson. And William Stevenson, you and I did a show about William Stevenson. He was the inspiration for James Bond. 
He was the guy who was part of MI6, British Secret Service. So we're talking about the original James Bond, John D. Like, you know, it's all the same continuity. They came over to America. Stevenson started what became the OSS, was the architect for what became the CIA. So all of that, this guy goes and he plants a bomb there. And the purpose of doing that was they were trying to soften up the American public to join the war. Like this was part of that. That is linked when Flushing Meadows. And then this other interesting thing, we talked about the crowning of the king. Literally, there was a new British monarch. The first one in over 50 years occurred during this corona ritual window. And Prince Charles became King Charles. And what's kind of ironic, that happened in May of 2023. All British coronations occur at Westminster Abbey. That's just kind of like for the past thousand years or so. So I was curious about that. I was looking at that. If you go and you look at where the tennis tournament took place, the coronation took place May 6, 2023. So I'm like, all right, what was going on in Flushing Meadows on May 6, 2023? Well, the prestigious Westminster Kettle Club, you know, the dog show, which all of like the New York's elite, which also deals with aristocracy, the upper crust, like it's a big deal in their world. For the first time ever, they hold their kennel show, Westminster Kennel Show, right at the same place, May 6th, you know, at the place where Djokovic received his crown. So we see that. That's all in the background. So we know that that's connected. That's the first layer. Sorry, let me throw in another little thing that's also background. But when you told me this was the site for the 1939 and 1965 World's Fairs, I was like, okay, well, we can definitely have some fun here because those World Fairs are just so strange. They're always full of weird little threads that people have just never heard. So I thought if we needed extra stuff, which we don't, I could just find some things there. But I was looking into this area and... Before the World's Fairs, this site was converted into something they called the Corona Ash Dumps in the 1920s, which were featured prominently in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby as the Valley of Ashes. The site was used for the World's Fair and the next one after it, and then it was called a park. But I found this quote from an article where it says, outside of probably hell, there is no literary landscape as forlorn and soul-crushing as the rat-infested ash dumps of Corona, Queens. And this goes back to the burnt offerings thing that we talked about earlier. And in your slide here, it says that the big stadium there is the Arthur Ashe Stadium. So it's like Arthur Ashe, I don't know who that is, some billionaire who has a stadium named after him. It has nothing to do with the coal burning in the 1920s, yet Ash and Corona... Brother, you are so good. You're so spot on. Okay, so I'm going to add to it. So first off, Arthur Ashe was in what was once an all-white sport tennis. He was the first black champion, the first number one. He was American. And he was a real, like what Jackie Robinson was to baseball, Arthur Ashe was to tennis. So F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby, you're absolutely right. And how The Great Gatsby became part of every high school student has to read that, or maybe that's a middle school thing. So the Valley of the Ashes has been put into everyone's consciousness, and that was forced through a couple of different things, and we're not even going to go down that path. But you're absolutely right. That is key. And in that book, the Valley of Ashes, which is talking about, you're right, the Corona Ash Piles, which was a literal thing in the late 1800s, 
from the literary perspective, it was the symbol of where all of the underbelly of New York City affluence showed itself, the lower 33, if you will. So it's like, that's what it represented. If you go and you look at the book of Daniel, like part of what the book of Daniel is talking about is Daniel, this prophet, who is able to remain pure as he lived through the trials of Babylon. Like Daniel was alive in Babylon during the tribulation. So like, that's kind of like what we see is happening at the Valley of Ashes. But then to bring it one step further, well, the ashes ties into the mythology of the phoenix, the crashing of the bird and the rebuilding from the ashes. That's the coronation. That's the king is dead, long live the king. It's the continuation of the cycle. And so all of that is imbued into this land. You're 100% right. Let's go on to the World's Fair because you're right. We could spend a lot of time on the World's Fair. Like there's been a lot of exposure. I love the work which Howie Mikowski has done where he really gets you to realize about the World's Fairs. There tends to be, from my following along other people's research, World's Fairs, there are two kind of themes. Like are the World's Fairs taking on Tatarian buildings and repurposing on them? There's that theme. But then there's also, which is a little bit of an easier pill to swallow, is what Howdy puts out, which is the world's fairs were used as mechanisms to indoctrinate the world, the people who would go to it, like how to see things, how to see Native Americans, how to see this, how to see that. The 1939 World's Fair was important because it was the first World's Fair really, really focused on the future. Everybody get ready for the future. And the 1964-65 World's Fair was also very much about the computer future. It was space age and computer. Those were tied in directly right there. And we could go down a list and look at all of the players that happened because those that were introduced into the consciousness of reality that happened there. And there's some really big ones that we can go down and see. There are a lot of firsts with computers and video games and so forth. But we're going to kind of skip over that just because of time. And I'd like to lean into this one. In the 1939 World's Fair, it was the precursor to World War II. And to me, there's a 100-year cycle going on, which began in 1945 to 2045. And World War II is a key part. They had to take everyone away, send them to Europe, traumatize everyone, and then they bring them back to a whole new America. That was the baby boomer story. So before that, the preface is this World's Fair. And you could see historically the problems that were happening in Europe by what was going on with the different countries there. But most interesting and particularly topical right now was the introduction occurred at the 1939 World Fair. There was a pavilion for Palestine becoming the state of Israel. That's when that story was first introduced to the collective consciousness. And why that gets really interesting is because after like all the stuff that happened with the World's Fair, World War II occurs, League of Nations becomes the United Nations, and then Rockefeller eventually goes and gives land in New York, which was once a slaughterhouse, to then build the United Nations. But it took years to build that. There was a temporary house for the United Nations. And where was that? Flushing Meadows, the exact same place. And a couple key things happened. Probably the two biggest things that happened during the time 
on Flushing Meadows Corona Park. So we can say this energy is grounded into the ground there. One was the establishment of Thomas Huxley's UNICEF. We can see all the things which UNICEF does. And then also that was when the UN voted on the resolution which legitimized the establishment of the state of Israel. And I'm not trying to turn this into like a geopolitical conversation because in my opinion, like all of that stuff, if you're caught up on that level, that's what they want you to. You got to see beyond that. But we can still recognize it exists. And particularly as we're having this conversation, that is the latest hot topic. That's the latest World War III trigger is the state of Israel. So that is tied very much into this land. And let me add this, because you mentioned these world fairs are programming of how to see things and what's going on in the world, how he talks about them being in conjunction with the reset. So yes, World War II began four months into the World's Fair. So what is a reset? Well, you have to destroy a bunch of old stuff and then show people the new stuff. This is the way the future's going to go, we're designing it right here. And in the 1965 World's Fair, Disney had a huge influence. I took this from the Wikipedia of the World's Fair, but the fair is remembered as the venue that Walt Disney used to design and perfect his system of audio animatronics in which electromechanical actuators and computers control the movement of lifelike robots to act out scenes. This is basically his first animatronics. Walt Disney Enterprises designed and created four shows at the fair. One is for the Ford Motor Company. Didn't see anything super interesting there. Another one is Abe Lincoln, whatever. But these two are interesting. So Pepsi-Cola presents Walt Disney's It's a Small World, a salute to UNICEF and the world's children at the Pepsi-Cola Pavilion. We know that turned into a, a major thing, but it started here. And then this other one, General Electric sponsored Progress Land, where audiences were seated in a series of ring-shaped revolving auditoriums called the Carousel of Progress, where they viewed an audio animatronic presentation of the historical progress of electrical technology in the home. The Sherman Brothers composed the theme song, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, for this attraction. The highlight of the exhibit demonstrated a brief plasma explosion of controlled nuclear fusion. What? I didn't know you could do that today. So it seems like that was probably some trickery, a little bit of a magic trick to show people. Who knows? But there's a lot of folks out there now who think nukes aren't real. I don't even really go too deep into that. I've heard their case and they do show some compelling evidence, but in multiple ways, this seems to be a programming event that Disney helped coordinate to demonstrate a plasma explosion and a controlled nuclear fusion. I just think that's odd. Whether you think nukes are real or not, you can probably find that odd because nothing like that exists today. So what were people shown? But I just thought that was fun. It loops in Disney and a lot of other major themes to this World's Fair again, right on this land. and. We will continue on. I want to lean into what you said about reset. So reset is we're crowning a new king. And that's part of this ongoing like ritual sort of, they're always showing us these rituals because 
there's all of these like wheels within wheels. There's all of these smaller things which are collapsing and being built upon and built upon. And there are larger cycles and there are smaller cycles and larger rituals and smaller rituals. And what you're describing is it just fits in perfectly. These are all of the energies. These are all of the players. These are all of the themes which are being grounded into the land here, which is being continually used to bring a, a sleepwalking mass into like a predetermined laid out future. Like this is how they do it. I want to go back and just like reiterate why the coronavirus or the corona ritual, we know that it is really, really special. And the reason why we know it is so special is because, well, two ways. One, we can see that everyone was involved. The age of conspiracy theory ended with corona. It all became conspiracy fact. Like if you were ever being honest with yourself and you talk about conspiracy pre-corona, like there's always like a chance, like maybe it's just all coincidence. Maybe there's not some big plan. But then once you go and saw all the corona, you're like, oh yeah, look, every government, every celebrity, every big business, every small business, every local government, they're all in cahoots with it. So you're like, yes. So we know like corona is when they showed us everyone's involved. And secondly, they literally shut down the world. The entire world shut down for like a month or two. When has that happened? That didn't happen with World War II. That didn't happen with anything else. The entire Western world was shut down. So we know because of that magnitude that what is being rebirthed has to be in parallel to that magnitude. Like the size of the ritual is in parallel to what is being rebirthed. And we can begin to see like, these are the players. This is what's always been evolved. It's always been a Disney operation. It's always been a Pepsi operation. It's always been a UN operation. It's always been a British operation. That's what we can see. We can see that. This is also like, depending upon how you want to look at it, James Shelby Downard would define it as a Freemasonic mockery. The Freemasons, they're mocking at everyone, like making fun of them by pointing out all of this sort of stuff. It's also described as, this is where Revelation of the Method, James Shelby Downard, Michael Hoffman. Or we could look at it more so as just like a more archetypical trickster element. It's all kind of the same, but it's there. And what is this mocking which I'm talking about? So the first thing we want to go and do is we're going to go back and look at Djokovic. He's similar to Kobe in the fact that they both are kind of like outsiders. Kobe was not really like any of the other basketball players. He was aloof. He was kind of difficult. Michael Jordan was very difficult, but he was a little bit more mainstream. Kobe was a little bit different, but so is Djokovic. And one of the ways which we saw Djokovic was he was always very open, like pre-COVID, with an anti-vaccine stance. And typically when you are a $100 million athlete with $100 million like endorsements. You have to be a good company man. And Djokovic hasn't always been like that company man. He was allowed to be anti-vaccine. And so when COVID struck, when the worldwide shutdown struck, and then they introduced the, the vaccine and the world began opening up again, in the tennis world, there was, we can have tournaments, but everyone's going to have to get the shot. And Djokovic has a history of like, I don't do vaccine. I ain't going to do this vaccine. And that became a thing. And some tournaments he could play and some tournaments he couldn't play. But specifically in the US Open the previous year, he couldn't play. He's like, I'm not going to get a vaccine. So 
future life unfolds, and then we come to 2023. He plays in the 2023 U.S. Open, and he wins it. By this time, Moderna, which wasn't a company before COVID, but now is a billion-dollar company, you know, where like whatever that thing does or did to people, like that became something. Like that's part of the magic, and they became a sponsor of the United States Open. And within the tennis world, like at the end of any tournament, the tennis talking heads will talk about all of the matches and so forth. And they would pick one particular great tennis display and they would call it the shot of the day, like the tennis shot of the day. And Moderna, you know, because they've got a great sense of humor, they're like, we're going to go and we're going to be the sponsor, the Moderna shot of the day, you know, at Corona Park. And Djokovic then goes and wins the shot of the day. You know, he gets the shot of the day. So we've got this like joke. His name is Joke, you know, written into it that like he is the spokesperson. He's the greatest tennis player, but he's the guy who said the whole time, he's like, I'm not going to take the shot and you guys are sponsoring me and you guys are giving me all this money, but I'm not doing it. And so this is a gaslight for probably more the mainstream tennis mind because they're the ones who have to deal with the cognitive dissonance of like on one hand putting up their new king of tennis, at the other hand, like he's challenged a lot of their beliefs of germ theory and the power of vaccines. That happened, and that's part of the trickster joke, which is part of Djokovic. But there's another element too, which we want to add into it. The second element is this. Flushing Meadows is known as an icon outside of tennis for this large sculpture It's a three-dimensional sculpture of the globe, you know, globe earth folks, (laughs) flat earth folks, whatever. Like in the center of it is the world's largest globe called the Unisphere. And it was built for the 1964 World's Fair. And it's still up there today. And you'd probably recognize it if you saw it. Right. For visual reference, old universal pictures, movies, before they used a globe, they used that wire mesh statue of what the globe's supposed to look like. So you've seen it in the intro to movies before and in movies, as I think we're going to mention. And that's where I'm going with this. So (laughs) where was this prominently displayed in Hollywood, in Hollywood magic? Because this is, you know, it's all part of this like 360 degrees. This whole culture is a Disney ride. It's 360 degrees, no matter where you look. It's the same people like, you know, doing the same puppet show using the same symbols. So because you see it everywhere, you think it's real. So where was that used most prominently most recently was in the Men in Black movie franchise, particularly the very first Men in Black film. And so now we have introduced into this location. So the climax of the Men in Black film takes place where they're like, you know, they got their laser guns and they're fighting aliens. I think they blow up that globe. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I haven't seen that movie for a very long time. But that took place. But now we've got another element in there because we've got Men in Black, the movie. So are Men in Black a real thing? Or is Hollywood making fun of it? Now we've got more of this gaslighting, mocking jokery. Now it's tied in specifically to the Corona Park. But now like if Men in Black are a real thing, What they're pointing to is the existence of secret government agencies. And that extends beyond just the whole idea of UFO cover-ups. 
it deals with all of the really secret government sort of stuff. So that has been introduced into the elements. So that is part of this whole sort of linked into the land. But my favorite, you know, the thing that tickles me the most, because I laugh at the artistry of what's gone in to give all of us this wonderful show in front of us is the fact of this. So if you're familiar with Men in Black, let's go to the original Men in Black. I think there might be like four or five of them, but the original one deals with Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Tommy Lee Jones is known as Agent K, and we've got Will Smith character is known as Agent J. And so we're looking at this sort of like in a dream construct sort of way, and our two characters in the other film which we're watching, which is the Kobe Bryant character, the Djokovic, like they kind of in a very general archetypical way, they look a lot like Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And we've got like Kobe with the Agent K and we've got Djokovic. His name is spelled DJ, but it's still enunciated. The language of the birds, the phonetics, the Phoenicians, it's pronounced with the J. And so we're beginning to see in all of this, like as we're talking about whether we want to call it this nightmare alley or this grand charade or whatever it is, all of this energy, which is being put out there for us to blindly witness, there is a lot of humor into it. And so I want to wrap up this section by just saying this, and this is where I think we're going to go in the second section, which is, well, what do we do with this? And this is what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest that I pointed out the Corona ritual was a big ritual. The world shut down. You indicated yourself in the very beginning. We've shifted in our lives. You've moved from California to Florida, like Everyone, I think, in the past 1,290 days has probably seen a major shift one way or the other, whether that's career, whether that's relationship. I'm going to suggest that the shift is required to be even bigger. The opportunity is even greater to not continue to step on to the next iteration. And so what I'm going to like to do in the second half is really show what's happened to me on a personal level and with the Freemasons and this like free fall of my own life as both a demonstration, but then also maybe as an inspiration of what it really looks like to like fully embrace stepping out of the indoctrinated sort of lives we've always been into. So that's kind of how I would like to wrap up this first hour. And I thought it went great. I was so excited how we how this unfolded. This lived up to my internal expectation. <laughs> I agree. This was great. And I don't usually put such a fine point on first hour, second hour, but when we're telling an overarching story, I feel like it's kind of an important thing to keep the time in mind because we want to stick the landing in the middle and then elaborate in the second half. And the only other thing I want to just add to help contribute to sticking the landing in the first hour regarding Hollywood and this location, JK, of course, in and of itself is just kidding. So then you tie it to the other ritual we're talking about. Will Smith has certainly been through a humiliation ritual and a half lately. Not really relevant, but just something to note. But when it comes to the World's Fair and this globe statue on the Wikipedia page, it mentions that in the 1997 film Men in Black, they present the fair 
as having been a cover for the first arrival of alien life forms on Earth. So it's not just a scene. It's a very pivotal thing in the MIB mythology with the two spaceships being incorporated into the observation towers, which you see at that location. The fair also features heavily in the 2015 Disney film Tomorrowland. Of course it would. That's the whole theme of the fair. And then in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, also owned by Disney, the fair is depicted as having been organized by Howard Stark. And in Iron Man 2, it is revealed that the fairgrounds layout depicts the formula for a new element he had synthesized. Decades later, his son, Tony Stark, used the fairgrounds to host his own Stark Expo, which is attacked at the climax of the film. So again, like not just small scenes in the movie, the whole climax or the whole theme of the movie hinges on this location. So just wanted to throw that out as well. And I consider that landing stuck. And so what is next for you? I mean, I know you're only looking downfield so far, but in terms of the way the dance is done and we wrap up and we tell the audience what a person might be working on next, if they feel inclined to support them, I've heard you mention you have two projects in the works. I don't know if they're still in the works, but a class is one of them. Okay. So yes. So part of this experience for me, and that's why I like seeing this Corona ritual, me telling this story, all the stuff I do, and I think this is true for all of us, like there has to be self coming from you. It's got to be meaningful to you. Like, otherwise it's not real. Like it's not like filled with juice. And so when I tell this Corona story about the crowning, like this is as much of like a telling it to myself as it is to telling to everyone else. And I'm looking at where I am. Like the past two years have been intense and I find myself in a certain place where I'm like, okay, now what? That's the question. So I don't want to just be a feather. Like that's not my nature. Like I've got purpose with where I go, but it's nomadic. So this is the vision which I'm doing. So I'm teaching my first natural astrology class and I'm doing this remotely next week. And there's been talks about that for a while. When I say a natural astrology class, it's not like, you know, this means that sign. It's like really understanding, like reframing, rewiring consciousness to have a true relationship with your environment and to allow that rhythm to then carry your life in the same way that it benefits the body to be in a relationship with the circadian rhythms of earth. It benefits the internal world to have a relationship with the heavenly orbits. So I'm teaching that class and I'm doing that over the next five weeks. After that, I'm going to start on the turning of the moon. I'm going to just have drop in classes. Like that's what I'm going to be doing wherever I am. And it's going to be open to whoever wants to come. It'll be like a sliding scale, like five to 20 bucks. Like, you know, you pay what you can. And I don't want money. I mean, I'm going to tell you how I've met this, just as an example. I have a degree in finance. I once wrote a workshop for how to manage personal finance. Like, I have a history within me of knowing a lot about personal finance. So moving off of how I used to think of money and personal finance, like there was a lot of there's a lot of hiccups because I came with a lot of societal baggage with it. And so this is where I've landed with money. Most people want money so they can do things or they can have freedom. 
I am 100% focused on doing the things I want to do. And so if that means I need to have money, well, then I'll have money. But I'm more interested in what I want to do. And this is interesting. I once heard Prince Charles talk. He said that he's never held a dollar or a pound in his life. He's never had a need. You think that when he gets off a plane, he uses a passport and someone stamps it? So the point I'm trying to make is you can live on this life without ever touching money and you can live in this life without a passport. How? I don't know. But what I'm saying is like, I'm much more interested in that. But I still do need money to come through me. I don't want money in a bank. I don't want to make income so I have to pay taxes. But money keeps showing itself. What do I do? So I'm going to have regular sessions on natural astrology. People are interested in that. And so I'm like, okay. And I had been a little bit unwilling to do so. That's going to probably come in the new year. In the new year, I'm going to begin doing that on the regular basis. I'm going to be doing that on the quarter moon. Quarter moon is important because it's the midway point. It's the balance points when you see like a half moon. And then what I've been doing right now is I've been moving along primarily through house sitting gigs. That's been kind of enjoyable. But what I've learned to do personally is I can come into a place and I can feel at home very quickly. I don't feel homesick anymore. Like I don't feel things like that. Like I had to learn that skill. So now I've learned that skill. So the question is, well, what do you want to do now, Mike Wong? So what I'm interested in doing, and I've got like the first thing is already lined up, like in Asheville, North Carolina next week, I want to begin to have a circuit. Like I traveled, I did 33 days on the road traveling cross country this year, stayed with people the whole time. What I want to do the next level is I want to start giving workshops and I just want to talk and I want to do what I call natural astrology ceremonies. It's the coolest friggin' thing. I get people together, we build the chart of the heavens, we point it out in the sky, we sign a big book and we recognize that we're all sovereign beings and we're living in this mystery and we're not participating in the joke which they're trying to tell us. And I want to start doing that with a little bit more foundation. What I would love to be able to do is spend six weeks in a place, six weeks in another place, six weeks in another place, ideally in retreat centers. Like that's where I'm going to go with this. And while I'm there, like, you know, the retreat center benefits because I'll be able to offer my service to the people who come to the retreat centers. But I'm going to do this in a way. I met this dude. Part of my breaking away was I met all of these like drifters. And I thought a drifter meant a certain thing. I had an image in my mind of what a drifter was. And I have a totally different idea. I met the most sophisticated artistic drifters. And I met this dude by the name of Weather Carrot. Weather Carrot, his skill is he builds walls by stone. Like when you see those fancy stone walls, he builds those. And he's got this circuit where he travels around the country and he stays usually six weeks at a place and he works on their walls and it might be a 10-year process to build the wall. The people put him up. They feed him. Maybe they give him money. Maybe they don't. But he doesn't need money. He doesn't even have a license. He doesn't have a car. He's completely off the system. He doesn't look like a drifter. He looks like a regular person and he's got like this rich life with rich relationships and he moves around. He, to me, is motivation. I'm like, oh, well, that's a way of doing something. I don't want to do it like him, but I want to be inspired by him. So I'm incorporating that. What do I want to do? I want to meet with people. I want to talk to them. I want to tell stories. You want to go and tell alternative narratives? I want to put wind in people's sails. I find their sweet spots, Greg. That's what I do. And so I want to be able to do that as the nomadic, you know, I'm doing it as the nomadic somatic astrologer, natural astrologer. 
So regularly, I'm going to be going and, you know, people are going to be able in the new, probably like six weeks, I'll start doing it. They'll be able to come in when they want to drop in natural astrology sessions. If you're interested in what really pays my bills right now is I do one-on-one sessions. I'll either do a starboard ceremony. Some people still need that. I'll do a starboard ceremony for someone. Or I'll just like, I do a lot of like one hour conversations. Like people just need someone to talk to. They want to hear my opinion. I talk a little astrology about them, but that, that's been something which I do. If someone is capable or interested of putting together an event or supporting, like, you know, reach out to me and like, we could go and do something. I would love to be able to do that. I also get like a decent amount of one-time donations. That's always appreciated. Some people do recurring donations. Like I'm definitely in the poverty line, but I'm below like, no one's paying any attention to any money coming in. And that kind of works for me. I don't, I just need enough money to be able to like move from place to place and to make certain there's food and gas and I got to pay insurance. That's the one thing I still got to pay. And you know, there's that. What I'd recommend for those who want to stay in touch, just go to Linktree. Hopefully you'll include in the show notes, my Linktree account. I still put up regularly on Instagram. I still do YouTube. Those links can be found on Linktree along with everything else. And I took a time off of going on other podcasts. There was a time where I was doing maybe two podcasts a week outside of my own. I love going on other podcasts and just, you know, shooting the shit and telling stories. And for those two years, like I couldn't do it. Like I didn't have it in me. Like I was like, I'm, I'm still a work in progress. And so I'm ready to come back out. Like there were two other people who were at the event at Path to Freedom, Mike Winter. So January 4th, I think I'm going to go there and I'm going to go out and spend time with him on his farm, hopefully in the springtime. And then also someone who I met, I think his name is Alex Zek, The Way Forward. He's got another podcast. And those are, at least Alex was one which I haven't been on before, but I want to go and start get back into the saddle. And so- to come back in and start telling these like, you know, new stories and ways of encouragement and inspiring people to see things differently and to feel the strength within themselves, you know, crown themselves to be able to step into their own unknown, all without being part of the friggin' system so that I don't have to have the concerns you have. Right, right. That's true. Man, well, I appreciate not only the first half, which was a wild synchromistic ride, but in the plus show, getting personal and talking about those things, I don't open up that much. So <laughs> I guess I did. And uh, yeah, you really are the wandering guru now, the nomadic, somatic astrologer extraordinaire. And I appreciate you relaunching yourself to the podcasting world with the conspiracy podcast king of Central Florida now, I suppose. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think people will reach out. You know, that's what we're doing. You, you're casting a line, a digital line to a lot of people. And I think somebody will definitely vibe with what you're saying. Probably more than one. Your audience, it always does. Mm, good. Good to know. All right, man. Well, take care. I appreciate you putting these slides together. I will share them with the audience. But you got a skill that can be used in many different ways on a one-on-one basis anywhere you go. So I know you're going to be all right. All right. I appreciate the vote of confidence, Greg. Of course, man. Keep fighting the good fight and take care. All right, brother. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. 
Yes, people, how's about that? Another great return guest dropping in to bring in the new year and do what he does best. I thought this was really interesting in the sense that so many researchers of high strangeness or synchronicity, consciousness, and these sorts of things tend to find the signposts coming back into their own life. And that seems to be happening more and more with Mike. And I guess maybe a little with me. Of course, synchronicity is defined as meaningful coincidence, and that's subjective and usually more of a wink and a nod to the person themselves. So then it ends up kind of like explaining a profound dream to someone else. They don't see it how you saw it, and it sometimes just doesn't translate well, and I definitely hope parts of this did not come off that way. Also, before we get too far into it, I gotta shout out Damn My Eyes for the intro, probably the best version I have right now. I said I would shout out these artists, and I tried to, except for the ones that I paid for, but I tend to record wrap-ups before I pick the songs to throw on the front and back. But I saw a couple of his posts in the forums, and I just want to say I appreciate you, man, and sorry for the times I don't say something at the end of the episodes I use your song for. I also saw the posts that wanted a ska version of the theme song, and I did ask for a ska one already. I'd love a good quality ska one, and more punk versions, and probably even a reggae one. What would it sound like if the Dirty Heads covered the THC theme song? I'd like to know. Unfortunately, I'm not a musician, and I gotta just work with what I get. And when it comes to the last episode with Gordon, it was definitely well-liked, a 4.6. Can't complain about that. I consider anything over 4.5 a win. There were definitely little lines dropped about nukes and about the petrodollar being dead since the 80s that some people were scratching their heads and wish there was more elaboration on. I'm pretty sure we talked about the petrodollar thing in previous episodes with Gordon. But when little lines like that are so unexpected and peppered throughout on a bunch of different topics that people feel strongly about, a 4.5 is definitely standing strong. And I am sorry I kind of repeated myself with the work talk and personal concerns in this one. I really get annoyed when a host I listen to says the same things over and over, but I get how it happens because I don't really talk to these guys when we're not on the air. So think about your friends. You see one guy on Friday, on Saturday, you see a different buddy, and you kind of get your response to, hey, how's it going? Synthesized down to the streamlined cliff notes. And for me, that process is just a bit public, I guess, but I'm conscious of it. And I'm going to refrain from repeating myself, even though it was in the Plus show today. And these shows were not even recorded in order, but they're coming out in order. So that's a thing. But also, these are previous guests I have a rapport with. Otherwise, there's no reason to talk about myself or the state of the show. But that said, on the subject of them both being repeat guests, Mike is right up there with Gordon in having become somewhat of a THC staple himself. He certainly exploded in popularity because of the podcast interviews he was doing. I suppose we were a part of that. And he's tackled a lot of interesting threads since. And I'd say the Kobe Bryant plane crash sinks with the school and the other plane crash. All that is probably second only to the original Susquehanna River goddess work, 
Man, that blew my mind. I was so happy when that originally got recorded. I knew it was solid and I knew you guys would like it. Really fun. And the next one I have is actually kind of like that. Not any sort of similar themes. It's not synchro mysticism, but it's an unexpected guest going to some really unique and unexpected places. In a similar way to the original Mike Wan interview, I got off this call and was all jazzed up. And going back, though, there is something about keeping the video on, which I never used to do when recording, that causes me to lose focus on the audio quality because I'm looking at the person. When the cameras are off, I'm certainly more obsessive about it. And this guest was smoking the whole time, coming in at the camera at an odd angle. And I loved that, but listening back to his side, it's very noisy. Most likely something we can straighten out in editing, but I think it's going to be another really well-liked show if we can package it up so that nothing distracts away from the material. Here's a hint, he's the director of one of my favorite Nicolas Cage movies in recent years, and we went two hours without talking about that at all. <laughs> that is what I'll say about it. There's your clue. But if you want that deeper dive into this interview, check out the slides that Mike gave me. I've included them in the show notes. You'll see a lot of added details that we didn't get time to throw in. And even if you're someone who doesn't see the synchro mystic connections as being that compelling, a show like this does dovetail into obscure random history. Like some details about those world's fairs, like the location of Flushing Meadows Corona Park. I liked it. And did I bring this up? It's in my notes. I don't recall going through this, but did I talk about the 64th Eurovision song competition? I don't want to be repeating myself again, but it took place in Tel Aviv in 2019, obviously. 2019, think about that year. And Madonna and Quavo do a really esoteric performance of these songs Like a Prayer and Dark Ballet as the finale of the show. We've all heard the song Like a Prayer, but listen to this part before the second song starts, and I'll cut it off after the first lyrics you hear, but keep in mind Madonna is on a staircase while dancers in gas masks continue to collapse to the floor. They are so naive. They think we are not aware of their crimes. We know, but we are just not ready to act. The storm isn't in the air. It's inside of us. I want to tell you about love. But it's getting late now. Can't you hear outside of your supreme hoodie the wind that's beginning to howl? Mm -mm -mm. 
Not everyone will make it to the future. Not everyone is learning from the past. Not everyone will make it to the future. Not everyone that's here is going to last. Is that fun to listen to if you're in that audience? But it takes place in Tel Aviv. We know that's potent right now. Maybe it's always potent. I'll give you that. But one country pulled out of the 2019 Eurovision competition without an entry. Who do you think that was? Ukraine. That's right. And it's because this artist, Maruv, M-A-R-U-V, well, she had won the chance to represent Ukraine with her song, but thought the contract she was given was insanely restrictive. And, spoiler alert, it was. So her label said they wouldn't pay to fly her to Tel Aviv, so she pulled out and Ukraine didn't have an entry. Now that's a pretty heavy sink, right? We have Israel, Ukraine, gas masks, and a weird reference to a lot of death. Oh, and one more thing. The name of this chick's song that won, you won't even believe it, but I'm going to tell you, it was called Siren Song. And now we're in a weird place, right? And why is Quavo doing this final performance with Madonna at the Eurovision competition anyway? Seems like an odd pairing. Well, I think he paid his entry fee with the death of his Migos member, Takeoff, whose real name is Kershnik Kari Ball, and he was shot at a party in a bowling alley on 11-1-22. I don't know, but Isaac Weishaupt will tell you, if you just look at the long list of people who started getting into this upper-level milieu, palling around with a Madonna, and then suddenly... Someone very close to them dies in a somewhat strange way. And I know I've brought this death up before. News reports say that Takeoff caught strays and was not the intended target, yet he was shot multiple times in the head and torso. So that doesn't really add up because that sounds like he was very much the target. That's like execution style. But these are the rabbit holes that used to get me really fired up, smoking a joint and just picking any old thing and asking more questions, learning more details, seeing the synchromistic tapestry, connecting things that seem potent. I don't know if there's some archetypal template just replaying itself or if there's something about the ritualization of events, but it gets weird pretty fast. But it was nice to talk to Mike Kwan again. Of course, the Plus Show added even more stuff and got into the personal story of Mike being invited to give a presentation to Freemasons and how weird that got. And the Mike Kwan namesink. That's fun. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do and want more of it. And speaking of Plus, I got a great response from my new Plus pitch, actually. Plus people wouldn't know, but I put a pre-roll plus pitch at the beginning of the free show. I'm going to use it for a while. I've done this here and there, but I laid it on pretty thick with this one because in my head, I'm talking to people who have been listening to the show for a while and have yet to convert. So I had to lay it on thick. But the point is that I've definitely been seeing a lot more plus signups this week than usual, and I appreciate those free listeners who convert over, throw me the bone, and get to start experiencing the show in full. I couldn't do it without you. 
And I really should stick to focusing on the positives and not getting so frustrated with some of these things and ignoring the negative feedback. I know that's been a theme throughout the history of me doing this. And I do try, but it's kind of like that cartoon warehouse countdown of how many days since an accident getting flipped back over to one because people send me stuff like this clip from Owen Benjamin's recent live stream. And it's like, man, I haven't been frustrated with something in a while. Let's reset the clock. The first time I heard of you was on Sam Tripoli when I was just a first grade truther. You were on Alpha Vedic shortly after, but it wasn't until Greg Carlwood mentioned your use of the hard R for me to pull, trig, and subscribe to unauthorized.tv. <laughs> Funny, right? I mean, yeah, I know people are going to cancel for all kinds of reasons. My biggest frustration is when people are like, hey, I've loved your show for years, but you did this one show and I hated it and now I'm just done with you. This is even worse because it's like a single word. All the work I do and someone cancels their membership because I don't drop the N-word enough and Owen does. Something that's not even relevant to what we do around here. But man, it does make you just want to throw up your hands sometimes. And I'm even someone who does think it's juvenile and dumb to say N-word instead of just the word or all words. But it's not a fight I want to have or a hill I want to die on. I'm not 17 anymore. And I've learned, like so many things, you're not going to change the way everyone else thinks something should be. But it is a silly thing we do. You should be able to say words or you shouldn't say them at all. This middle ground of the N-word, the R-word, the C-word. It's silliness. We're not in school anymore. We're not kids. But whatever, thanks to the gracious Plus members willing to stick it out, even though there are not enough N-words dropped with the hard R on THC, it's a real sacrifice you guys make. I know. <laughs> As for the meetup calendar, here's what we got. January 11th and 13th, two events in LA. January 16th, Washington, D.C. January 20th, Mountain Home, Arkansas at the Rabbit Hole Coffee House and Brew. This one looks new, January 21st, Addison, Texas. Interesting. The event creator says, me and my son ride the Vitruvian Trail, which leads into Brookhaven Community College. I'm inviting any other electric skateboarders out there. Now we're getting really specific. You gotta like THC, live near Addison, Texas, and have an electric skateboard. If you fit that criteria and don't show up, well, that is a real disservice to our friend here. But then also January 23rd, Nashville, Tennessee, and we got February 10th in Saco, Maine at the Golden Rooster. Good stuff. Find the others. Meet in the real world. It's important. But all right, I'm getting out of here. Thanks again to Big Mike Juan, and I will catch you next time. His link tree is in the show notes. Get into the things he has going on and pay attention to the signposts in your own life. But I've done my part. Your move, synchro mystic reality writers, ritual performers, and cosmic stitchers of this strange world. Your fucking move.